Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Batia Ungar-Sargon, the deputy editor of Newsweek, a columnist for Compact Magazine, regular Fox News guest, and author of the must-read book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. She's also previously been a popular guest of Hub Dialogues. I'm grateful to have her join us again as part of our ongoing Future of News series to discuss what, in her mind, has gone wrong with the news media and what can be done to restore its place in our civic life. Batya, thanks once again for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor to be here. We'll come to the causes and possible solutions to the problems inherent in today's news media over the course of the conversation. But I want to start with your book's key idea that a lot of modern journalism has come to reject the principle of viewpoint neutrality and in turn become more ideological in general and more left-wing in particular over the past several years. Talk about this trend in the news media and how has it manifested itself? So in some ways, the return to a very strong point of view in journalism is not a very new thing. You know, if you were, if you could go back in time to New York City in the 1920s, you would find that most of the media was very, very partisan. You could be a communist in New York City in 1919, let's say, and have five communist newspapers that you would never dream of reading because they were the wrong brand of communism, right? <laughs> the media was extremely partisan, but it was partisan on behalf of the masses, most of the journalism was produced by working class people and for working class people because that's how you made your money. There were a lot of working class and poor people. And if you were catering to the elites, um, you would not get very far in terms of circulation. Of course, there were always papers that catered to the elites, like the New York Times, for example, and we'll get to that um, later, I'm sure. But it was very much partisan on behalf of the masses. And the problem with our media today is that it is extremely partisan on behalf of the elites. And the process whereby that happened took place over the course of the 20th century. There was this sort of post-war era from 1950, let's say, until 1970, 1975, it was sort of the golden era for equality in the United States. The working class really had a strong economic footing. You had a real sense of the middle class, and the middle class owned the majority of the GDP. Of course, we were still struggling, um, you know, in some corners of this country with racial equity. That goes without saying. But things weren't always improving, and you had a, a very, very potent 
working class that had achieved by and large, many of them, uh, the American dream and a middle-class lifestyle, homeownership, retirement and dignity and great health care, which is how most people sort of define that. And that all started to change when you had the sort of upper classes from a an intellectual point of view started to become not just intellectual and cultural elites who by and large still made the same kind of money as their neighbor, the plumber or the factory worker, but through a series of economic decisions made by and large by Democrats, although definitely supported by Republicans, you had the, the, the economy start to reward people who had a college degree disproportionately more and more. And so the middle class began to shrink with some people dropping off to the lower classes to the bottom with things like globalization and offshoring of manufacturing and disastrous trade deals that penalized the working class mass immigration that brought in a whole new working class to do service industry jobs, which made those jobs no longer provide a living wage. But you also had a lot of people who had been middle class kind of squeezed up to the upper middle class, to the upper 10%, upper 20%. That happened to college professors and it happened to journalists. And journalists became part of the elites. You know, they had always been sort of more liberal but they had been working class. The vast majority of journalists did not have a college degree, but that started to change over in the 60s and the 70s and really started to culminate in the 80s to where journalists who used to be the little guy looking into power became part of a powerful, powerful elite. So the best way to think about it is the kind of person who used to become a journalist was the kid who sat in the back row of the classroom, sort of cracking wise at the teacher, you know, getting sent to the principal's office. Maybe they had, you know, terrible parents, made them super anti-authoritarian. And so they couldn't go work in the factory like everybody else because they would have been a danger to themselves and everyone else. So instead, they became a journalist and they went to Washington and they gave politicians a hard time on behalf of their buddies who they still were neighbors with, right? They saw themselves as answerable to the working class and to the little guy. Today, the kind of person who becomes a journalist is the kid who sits in the front row and gets A's on everything. It's the kind of kid who literally the teacher has to say, let's let somebody else answer a question once in a while. They are extremely comfortable with authority. They go to the same private schools and elite universities as the people in power they're supposed to be reporting on from an adversarial point of view. And so they have class solidarity with politicians, but also the, the billionaires that they reel against because their kids all go to the same schools, they live in the same neighborhoods. And as the industry collapsed, as, as the, the newspaper industry, the local newspaper industry collapsed, more and more journalists got concentrated into that coastal elite. Now, people will say, well, the average wage of a journalist is you know $40,000. How can you call that part of the elites? But what you have to understand is that the entry-level positions are all in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, Washington, D.C., Austin, Seattle, the places with the highest rent on earth, and they pay something like $35,000 a year. 
that does that's like that tells you everything you need to know. The only people who can afford to become journalists are people who have parents who can support them, people who come from money. And increasingly, the profile of a journalist is somebody who went to an elite university and then took unpaid internships. Again, that tells you a lot about who you need to know who these people are. And so journalists became part of the elites. They, you know, 91, 92 percent in 2015 had a college degree. So it's definitely more now. The majority have a graduate degree. Um, the vast majority at places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal have been to the top 1% of universities. And what I argue in the book is that what looks like a political divide in our media is actually a class divide. The journalists in the elite media today, which sets the standard for everybody and has an increasingly larger share of the journalism jobs because of the collapse of the industry, these people are not just liberal, they are woke. And what I mean by woke is they have come out of a university system that has replaced a worldview based on right versus wrong with a worldview based on powerful versus powerless. Whoever has less power has inherent virtue in this worldview, and then they superimpose race onto that. And so they have a fantasy about who is white and who is a person of color. And every person of color has zero agency and zero power. They are powerless and thus inherently virtuous. This is the decoder key to everything you see in the media that is wrong and that is bad and that is terrible. And it applies just across the board. I mean, if you want to know why the media is carrying water for Hamas, a terrorist organization that dismembers children in front of their parents, it's because of this worldview that they brought out of the universities with them into the newsrooms and they have perverted the industry as a whole. And it's, you know, people seem to think that it's like, Half of the, the media is conservative and half is liberal. 96% of journalists who gave political donations in 2015, 2016 gave them to Democrats. So we're talking about 96% are on the left with just 4% left over to do conservative media. So, you know, it's 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 really problematic. But to me, this woke mindset that's taken over in the media this is this is a smokescreen for class. Their obsession with race, the moral panic around race in 2020, their obsession with open borders, the carrying water for Hamas. This is all stuff that is like totally alien to working and middle class Americans who have just like extremely tolerant, normy viewpoints on all of these issues. So that's pretty much the argument, the argument that I make in the book about what went wrong with the media. A common argument among these types of new age journalists is that viewpoint neutrality was always a false notion and that what they're doing is in a way more transparent in the sense that they're upfront with the fact that they're motivated by a sense of activism. Matthew, what do you think of that line of argument? It would be more convincing to me if they actually had good values, like if they actually believed in justice, right? I mean, it's very clear that they don't, right? They always, all of their mistakes are on the same side. And we got a real proof that they are full of it when they say that over the last seven weeks, because throughout the Me Too era, for example, we were led to believe that you cannot be neutral on an accusation of sexual assault or harassment. You must take a side, right? You must side with the victim. Okay, that that sounds justice -y, right? You know, like, okay, yeah, victim of us, okay. But as soon as the victims of mass rape were Israeli women, by the way, not all Jews, right? I mean, some of them were Muslims. But, you know, as soon as they were Israelis, suddenly it's, we have to suspend judgment. We have to see that they suddenly understood, they remembered 
that there was such a thing as journalistic integrity. And you see this again and again and again throughout the last seven weeks. I mean, it's so apparent how quickly they rediscover what journalistic values are. And you're seeing this in the university as well. I mean, it's not our topic, but, you know, for the last 10 years, universities have been silencing just regular run-of-the-mill conservative viewpoints that are represented among 70% of Americans as, you know, quote-unquote unsafe, right, for people of color or trans students or what have you. Now, now that the, there are people chanting on college campuses for the genocide of the Jews, suddenly Harvard University discovers, oh, we must allow different viewpoints here, right? Like that, so that you, I mean, if you didn't know it already that they were full of nonsense, you know it now. But I think even before, the question of justice is not up to a person to decide who is 26 years old. Because they spent four years in a woke mind virus factory, right? Called Harvard, right? I mean, it isn't the hubris of thinking that it is that these privileged people, the most privileged people in our country, with the highest education and the most coddled lifestyle, should have the right to determine for the rest of the nation what is just and what is not, and accidentally always end up on the wrong side of each of these issues. It's nonsense, right? I mean, it's obviously nonsense. It's obvious hubris, and it could only have come out of a society that worships youth in this deeply corrosive way. I mean, this is an angle we don't really talk about enough, but I mean, the ways in which leftist culture is built around the worship of the young and the idiotic. <laughs> it's something we should really talk about more, I think. Your book would be worth reading if that's where your analysis stopped, but it isn't. You delve into the underlying economics that have contributed to these trends. How did the end of the advertising model and the rise of subscription-based journalism contribute to these developments? You know, if the journalists themselves had merely become part of the elites, that in and of itself wouldn't have been enough to transform the industry, right? Because journalists work for people, they have bosses. The question is, why did those bosses go along with it? Why did the New York Times top brass capitulate to the woke mob? And the answer is exactly as you say, because the business model was built around sustaining those viewpoints. And the reason for that is uh, it's a question of the medium being the message, right? Mm -hmm. So it used to be that the vast majority of journalism was produced in the context of towns across America that were mixed towns. It was before the great sorting to the coasts, you know, all the liberals moved to the coast and left red America, you know, so you had towns that were, you know, 50% liberal and 50% conservative. And so a publisher, you know, there would be, you know, one newspaper in this town. And so the publisher had a choice. He could either allow the journalists to follow their natural leftist, in, you know, in, in inclinations and report from this activist leftist point of view, or he could say, actually, I'm going to get 100% of this town to buy my paper by reporting the news straight and having a balanced editorial page. That was kind of the model for much of American journalism. Um, and that was based on circulation. All of your money came in through ads and through um, the revenue from circulation. And advertisers just did not want their ads to go alongside things that they thought would make people not subscribe or get upset. That all shifted in the age of digital media because in digital media, the unit of success the measurement, the way that revenue is created is not through circulation or just pure clicks, 
that was right in the beginning, but now it's measured in terms of engagement. How many people shared your piece? How many people posted a comment? How many people posted it to Facebook? How many people shared it and engaged with it and spent time looking at it, not just clicking, but time looking at it because ads are sold through third party based on time spent on page because while you're on the page, you are your data is being mined and that can be sold, especially if you live in an upper class neighborhood, which more likely means that you are a liberal and a leftist. And so the business model changed from circulation to engagement. And here's the key. The most engaged readers are obviously the most extreme, right? I mean, the moderate reader is not going to be as engaged. And the New York Times figured this out where they they did a, they ran a whole experiment to find out how long people stayed on the page. And they asked people to rate how an article made them feel and then how much it made them feel. And surprise, surprise, they found that the higher the person ranked how they were feeling, the longer they stayed on the page and the more likely they were to click on an ad. And so this whole business model shifted from being the most balanced possible to being the most emotional possible, creating the most amount of emotion in your readers. And that's whether you're reporting on the Middle East or whether you're reporting on a knitting circle that is, you know, quote unquote, white supremacist, <laughs> right? According to the New York Times, right? Because these are the things that make the the leftist elite white reader of the New York Times feel the way that they feel. And of course, this explains everything about the New York Times's coverage. They are no longer trying to get the widest possible readership. In fact, they want the opposite. They want a bespoke, elite, coddled, protected, privileged readership so that they can then go to their advertisers and say, guess what? Our readers make, you know, on average, $200,000 plus a year. You can pay more for each of these ads because it's not going to be seen by any of these nothings who make, you know, $50,000 a year. You're not wasting any advertiser dollars on someone who isn't rich. That's, that's a great set of insights. Let me follow up with this question. Why do you think media outlets, particularly newspapers and magazines, were initially slow to respond to these developments in the digital age? What explains the systematic failure on the part of the industry? What makes you think they want to respond to it? <laughs> you mean like to correct for the woke invasion? By which I mean, it seems to me that what's happened is they've backed into this business strategy Batya, in part because they were ill-prepared for the transition from an advertiser-funded model to something different. Now, maybe some people involved were ideologically predisposed to where they ended up. But if you read a lot of memoirs or other books about the industry, one gets a sense that a lot of industry executives during the, to, the transition to digital were just really ill-prepared. You know, for instance, they yeah. gave away their content for free for 20 years and are now trying to kind of put the toothpaste back into the into the tube. What, what do you think explains the failure to anticipate and respond to some of the these trends in the digital age? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, there were a number of surprises, right? So the first is, um, I think everybody expected at some point ads online would, you know, come somewhere close to how much ads in print were able to, to, to you, you know, to, to charge and they just never did. It was just too diffuse. And I think they didn't realize that. I think they were maybe in denial about the the role that, you know, economics and privilege played in the whole model, the way that it was already set up. You know, there was a sort of bait and switch with social media and Facebook. So in the beginning, it seemed like 
that was going to really be the avenue. You know, Facebook was going to sort of open its doors to this kind of thing and allow people to just sort of post what they wanted. And then people would be able to generate revenue from that through ad sharing with social media companies. But then after Donald Trump won the 2016 election, this was seen as some some kind of like massive Shonda and anybody who had played even a small role in this, including Facebook, had to do these like massive mea culpas and promise to fix the system that allowed a democratically elected person to assume office. <laughs> and so they sort of started to um, they changed the algorithm so that it, it deprioritized news and started to reprioritize photos from fr- friends and family, although it's very funny because at that point, like you know, younger people had already left Facebook and were moving on to things like Snapchat and then, of course, TikTok. So there were sort of a host of reasons, I think, that they were sort of unprepared and and not able to to maximize. And I, I still think that people struggle to understand like what they want out of, you know, as a media organization, because it has become just the cravenness of the people at the top. Like you can't really point to an editorial board that has um, resisted these pressures. I mean, a little bit the Wall Street Journal, but of course their audience has already been, you know, sort of conservative and rich. And so they already had a kind of economic incentive to resist this. But nobody who, like, you just came to understand how little moral weight there was to the people who were using the logic of morality to justify destroying the news business. The Hub has the perfect holiday gift for the thinking person in your life. That's right. You can give the gift of The Hub. Hub gifties get all kinds of great benefits, including a one-size-fits-all luxury twill Hub baseball cap to sport their hubbiness this holiday. You get access for your giftie to Hub Form, our daily email newsletter and discussion group. Complimentary access for the giftie to all our live events and special offers on events, books, and Hub merchandise. Grab your Hub gift subscription right now at our website, www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the Join button, scroll to the bottom of our membership page, follow the instructions, and we'll give you 20% off right now on this gift offer. Simply input the promo code SUBSCRIBE20 at checkout. Give the gift of the Hub this holiday season. Is there still a business model for large newspapers or magazines that are fully supported by the market? Or are we going to instead see some mix of smaller niche players and then outlets that are supported by a patron like Jeff Bezos or the Thompson family in Canada? And if you think the latter, is that a bad thing in your judgment? I really don't know the answer to that. I'm very bad at prognosticating. Whenever I try to divine the future, I'm wrong. So whatever I say now will be completely wrong. Um, so to avoid myself the shame and embarrassment, I'll just punt on the question. Um, Newsweek, where I work very happily, is owned by a billionaire who hates cancel culture. And so he has given me the mandate in the opinion section to run both points of view on every issue and to make sure we have a balanced editorial page. And I I feel very grateful to that, but I don't know that that's a sustainable business model. Um, There is a lot of money from private individuals going to new outlets and new endeavors that seek to buck the trend. But of course, they're also guided by the desires and and hopes and dreams of of their patrons. Substack seems to be doing really well. There's people there making a lot of money who who are doing great journalism. I I do think that the, the role of journalism in the age of social media may be less important. You have things like community notes on Twitter, which 
is pretty incredible where you have just crowdsourcing fact-checking of high-profile individuals making claims and statements, which is sort of the role of journalism, right? You have um, the things that don't exist anymore in terms of journalism, like local school board coverage, right? You don't really have local papers doing that anymore, but you have videos of them going viral online. And so people have access to information if they need it. Um, so I don't know that I. it's terrible that, I mean, the journalist casts as it is right now, like, I don't think that they should deserve to have the kind of authority that they have granted themselves. So I don't know that I feel terrible about the way things are going. The U.S. news media has faced a lot of the same challenges as Canada, including the rise of so-called news deserts in different communities. I've seen one statistics, for instance, that 225 counties in the United States no longer have a local paper. My sense, Batia, is that it hasn't reached the same level of political attention as it has in Canada, where it's a major issue with the government introducing various policies to support the sector. What do you think might be behind the different responses between our two countries? I think in general, Canadians seem to me more comfortable with government playing a role in the information that they consume. We really don't like that. <laughs> and I think that actually you can see that difference in things like the coverage of the truckers' freedom convoy where it in Canada, it just seemed like the media, there was no mainstream media outlet that was covering them accurately, as far as I could tell, giving voice to the way they saw themselves. It was all very much the Trudeau line, which was deeply problematic. So we don't have that kind of a relationship with the government where the government is involved in media. Of course, like NPR gets some government funding, but its share of the media market place is minuscule. And I think that that probably has a lot to do with the way Americans feel about authority in general. I think there's just so much anger at the media in America right now, that the idea that, you know, your local paper, it's hard to separate that out for like normal people. And also, we are in a moment of like where the, the working class is under economic duress. And I think a lot of people are very consumed with just the day to day of, you know, getting through and they feel like they feel very distant from Washington and from the processes that could make their lives better. And, you know, Christopher Lash has this great quote where he says people like to say that people are ignorant and that's why they're disconnected from uh, the news and they don't follow the news and they're disconnected from politics and they don't vote and they don't care. And he's like, but it's actually the opposite. People only get invested in a debate. People only get informed when they're invested in the debate. He says it's the opposite. Like if you know that you will have no way of um, influencing anything, why should you care? But the minute somebody demands that you justify something that you think, you're going to spend all night looking up that data, right? <laughs> And I feel like that might have a lot to do with it. People feel that they have correctly, they feel accurately they've been cut out of the equation and that nobody who has any power over their lives cares what they think. And so, you know, the demise of the local news media just feels very adrift. You're hardly a market fundamentalist. In fact, your worldview is probably best described as, as left wing or, or, or center left. What do you think about the argument that this has become a market failure? that necessitates role of government or, or public policy. Do you think governments may need to step in to help the industry transition 
from an advertising funded model to something new and different, would you support any different forms of government intervention? No, no, I'm too American. <laughs> we don't like that. <laughs> you know, look, the the I, would I trust the Biden administration that tried to have a ministry of justice to do this? No. Would I trust the Trump administration that, you know, has, has is extremely vigorous and denouncing its political enemies? No, I, I don't, there's no one I would trust, including myself to play that role. And so I, I I, just prefer that it be left to the, it's not exactly the marketplace. I mean, a lot of people are putting out content that's really good. And that's just, you know, f- I guess, funded by individuals, by b- small donations or not at all. Just, I mean, you know, I don't pay for Twitter. Twitter's free. I put a lot of stuff up there. And so in some ways it feels like the media is extremely sick, but in some ways it feels like the information ecosystem seems, I don't know, it seems okay to me. I, I, I don't feel like it's, I often rag on Elon Musk because I, you know, this guy's like, I feel like he's basically an arm of the Chinese Communist Party. Like his entire operation for Tesla is 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 in China. He built a showroom in Xinjiang where they're, you know, doing genocide against the Uyghur Muslims. But I, I do, somebody forced me to admit the other day that you do see both sides on Twitter. Like if you go into your For You tab, you will see both sides of the debates that you are. I see both sides of the debates that I'm passionate about. And I have to give him credit for that. I, I don't like giving him credit, but <laughs> I, I I have to give him credit for that. <laughs> it seems to me one of the challenges here is that a lot of people's conception of the media is rooted in traditional legacy institutions, and it causes them to miss some of the dynamism that you're describing occurring in the market. What do you think explains that? Just elitism. I mean, they they just just pure elitism. The the problem with what's happening in the marketplace, like, okay, so there's a bunch of people on YouTube who have very successful YouTube shows. The problem is it's extremely hard not to read the comments, understand what your audience wants more of, and then simply deliver that. I mean, I think that that there's there's very much a similar thing happening. You know, people get audience capture, right? Like they want to deliver what their audience wants to hear. It is very hard. I could tell you this, like, it's very hard to say things that you know your audience doesn't want to hear, especially because you feel super grateful to them for wanting to hear what you have to say in the first place. You know, if you have any humility at all and you're like, well, why is my opinion better than theirs? Like you feel like, wow, that's so, you know, it's so nice that they're giving me a platform to speak my mind and making me feel significant. But you have to be able to, and it's a very hard thing to train yourself to take the barbs of the people that you respect and of your own audience. And that's very, very difficult. And I think that that applies across the board. So you are seeing a corrective from this kind of independent YouTube news media, but all of the shows end up in the same place, which is this kind of like, you know, libertarian, conservative, but also like very suspicious of the government, very suspicious of, you know, the FBI, very anti-Israel, it turns out, like very anti-Ukraine. Like it just like they all end up in the same place if you follow enough of these shows. And it's because that's the YouTube audience. Like that is what they're there for. And that is why they're tuning into YouTube and not to, you know, Joe Rogan and not to MSNBC and not to CNN and not to Fox News. Right. Like it's a very clear, clear what that lane is. And resisting that urge has proven beyond the capabilities of the biggest the biggest folks on there. In that thing, Betsy, what would you say to the argument that notwithstanding all of the flaws of the legacy media, that they, at least in theory, held themselves to a set of journalistic standards and principles that newer digital market entrants may not? 
So I know a lot about two places on this planet and a little bit about a third. And all of those places, the New York Times is incapable of covering accurately. Now, they are, I guess, trying a little harder than your average like YouTuber, right? Like your Twitch streamer. <laughs> but they're not doing a great job. And I, you ju- I'll just give you an example from the last seven weeks because it's so fresh in my mind. But, you know, they they reported that Israel had bombed a hospital, leveled it and killed 500 people because Hamas told them that. And it took them a long time to correct it. They had already sent out three push notifications. A a synagogue in Tunisia was burned to the ground. There were riots across the region. And the president of the United States' proposed meeting with, um, I believe it was Jordan, was canceled because of their misinformation. Now, they sent out a measly like little correction at some point. A week later, they're taking Hamas's word for it about how many civilian casualties there were. Like, Why? They cannot help themselves but give Hamas the benefit of the doubt. I just can't take their, like, what does it mean that they are operating at a higher standard? I mean, no Jewish person who's following this, no Israeli thinks that. I don't know how, as an American who's not a liberal, you can take their coverage of Trump seriously. I mean, it was riddled with errors. And it's, again, always the errors in the same direction. They never make any mistakes in their coverage of Rashida Talib or AOC. They do make mistakes, but very much in their favor, right? Like, it's always in the same direction. Like, the bias is very, very powerful. So what does it mean to me that they have fact checkers when they can make errors like that or when it is their policy to quote Hamas and give them the benefit of the doubt again and again and again, week after week, when they know they have evidence that they're lying? Did anybody take those 500 people that were never killed from that hospital that was never bombed, although the parking lot was bombed by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, did anyone take those 500 people out of their tally of the 14,000 who have been killed? No. They never revised the list down. So those, you know, at least it's off by 500. But no, like it's like, it's insane to me. How, like, this is so obvious to anybody. Any working class person who you explain to, this would be obvious to them. And that yet the New York Times, they cannot quit Hamas. And it's just crazy. Like, what does it mean to you that they're, like, what does it mean that they have a fact-checking apparatus that this is what it results in? It's very hard to kind of wrap your head around that. I think for me, it is. I want to ask in particular about the moral equivalencies that we've seen at the heart of a lot of the reporting on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Is it merely a function of the ideological trends that we've already covered, or is it something else? And what do you think the consequences have been in terms of the public's trust? I personally don't. I I, I kind of, I mean, obviously it comes up like, are, are people simply anti-Semitic? I find that question kind of uninteresting. I think the larger woke capture is um, is much more interesting to me and important, I think, than what people has in in their heart. Like people are allowed to like, I don't know, there are people are allowed to have we don't believe in policing thoughts in this country. We don't believe in policing language. And if somebody's doing a great job and personally like doesn't really like Jews, I don't really have a problem with that. Like I don't need people to 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 like my people, you know, like it's that's fine. I need them to get the story right. And they don't. And they don't because of this ideological capture, like they they see Hamas as having less power than Israel. And thus they must inherently be virtuous at some level. And you're seeing literal thirst tweets over these butchers like it's Insane, but they so they must have some form of virtue. And because they are people of color, quote unquote, they have no agency. 
And so when they murder and they, you know, mass rape and they gut babies and tear babies out of a woman's stomach while she's still alive, like it must be Israel's fault because Israel is the perpetrator. And so they have to reverse engineer this and then accuse Israel of genocide and accuse Israel of everything that um, Hamas is doing. It's just woke capture. I think the level of attention is very, it's something that, you know, we do sit around and go, well, that's very interesting. <laughs> like, how come no one cares about the Uyghurs? I personally care a lot about what's happening there. Like as a Jewish person whose grandfather, you know, survived the Holocaust, like I care a lot about what's happening in Xinjiang. Nobody else seems to. So, you know, the level of attention to this is, I'll just say suspect. But to me, the kind of like, um, you know, I, I, I want to fight this at the level of ideas. I don't want to. Res- I don't want to resort to the safetyism and the accusations of racism. Like obviously, there are things out there that are just like so purely anti-Semitic, like what Susan Sarandon said. But I, I would much rather fight this at the level of ideas. And also, I think because you know this is not really for me. Obviously, for me, I, this story matters a lot. But to me, the main takeaway is, you know, the the the. The, this disgusting trend we're describing in the media is the function of a class divide and the people standing as a bulwark against wokeness is the working class and we have abandoned them economically because Obama decided that if you don't have a college degree, you should not have a fair shot at the American dream. Like if that was just that was the philosophy behind his entire economic agenda. So the very people who are standing as a bulwark against this horrific, disgusting worldview that justifies things like Hamas, we have abandoned while they have to watch the elites who are perpetuating this disgusting worldview have and achieve the American dream. Like that is what is so disgusting and about this moment and requires immediate amelioration. It's it's not about Israel. It's not about Jews. Like the Jews are going to be fine and Israel is going to be fine. Like, you know, we've made it this far, like a bunch of, you know, amoral sociopaths at the New York Times is not going to change that. And Israel's going to win. But, you know, the the working class is not going to win if we don't turn this boat around. So to me, it's, it's, it really is a story about like a much bigger problem in this country. And I, I really want to sort of focus on that if I may, because it's really important to me. One of the arguments you hear against media fragmentation in the digital age is that it is undermining the ability for Americans or Canadians for that matter, to have a shared story, a shared national narrative, Are you worried about that at all? Is the result of fragmentation of a multitude of smaller niche players that we no longer have a common understanding or a common vocabulary of our societies? I honestly think TikTok is much more dangerous on that front. It's literally a a propaganda tool to undermine the social cohesiveness and our children's ability to take pride in this country, probably in your country as well. That's, I think, the, the the biggest threat to social cohesion, national cohesion. Americans have, they remain amazingly and astonishingly resistant to the garbage that their elites try to push down their throats. So I don't feel worried about that. And I think you're seeing this even like in the Muslim community in America right now, which is proving remarkably, blessedly resistant to calls to be disgusting and anti-Semitic from it's from Muslim leaders. So I, I, I just feel very, very, that gives me a lot of faith and a lot of gratitude to God, because I think it's, it's very special 
to this country, but also just the American people. There's something about the American people that bends towards tolerance and good heartedness and a sense of who we are. So I feel I feel really strongly like we're we're going to be OK. Final question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of news? <laughs> oh, man. I'm like, should I be honest? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the news. You know, I wrote a book about the news. It's very hard for me to distinguish between the news as an industry and the sociopaths currently in control of it. So I feel like I don't I I don't know that it matters. So I guess that's sort of both pessimistic and optimistic. I don't feel hopeful that it will remain as it is for very long, except as a kind of like niche luxury good that, you know, elites, you know, produce for themselves and their friends. So they can brag about it at dinner tables. But I also don't feel like that's a bad thing. I guess I'd say like I don't really care if it because I think it's irrelevant. I think it's made itself irrelevant. And I think that's okay. The book is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Betsy Ungar Sargon, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. Please share this episode of Hub Dialogues with friends and family and leave us a review wherever you get your audio online. You can also go to our website, www.thehub.ca, to sign up for our free weekly newsletter featuring the best of The Hub's journalism and commentary. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolovsky Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.